You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Morning, Grace Community. <laughs> okay, my name is Joshua. Um, today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 11. Um, verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the the devastations of many generations. Verse 5, Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dresses. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Verse 7 Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation, He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Verse 11, For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. These are the true words of the living God. Thanks uh, so much, Josh. Well, morning to you all. It's uh, lovely to see you. And what an exciting journey we are on. Just to explain a little more from uh, building on what Brian was saying, we are still under RHC. We are aiming at independence by the end of the year. That's the plan. Uh, we are in the process of getting a company limited by guarantee registered with the authority. So please pray for that. Uh, that's going to be our new legal animal. And uh, from January next year, we will be independent. So that's when the the name will officially kick in, but you are welcome to refer to us as Grace Community uh, from now onwards, but just to explain that bigger picture. So we, for those of you who are new here or here for the first time, have been going through a six-part series building up to today, talking about 
the identity of this new community, this new church, which God is planting here, as well as some things that we want to commit ourselves to. I'm going to be touching on those commitments a little later. And this is part six of six, where we wrap it all up and uh, have one final look at the community that we would love to be. This is part of our identity. What does this grace community, hopefully, what is it going to look like? What is something that we can aim at? And so I've titled today's sermon, A Manifesto for Grace Community. A Manifesto for Grace Community. And the way we have decided to do it is to take a look at a chapter in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 61, and use that as a springboard. It's a, it's a, it's a picture which Isaiah has of people living under Jesus in the new covenant, and what those people or that community will look like. So in Isaiah's book, he has been writing about uh, people's problem with sin and how sin gets you into difficulty and trouble, how sin causes this strained relationship with God. And chapter after chapter, Isaiah will talk about this. But then in about the 40s, he starts sounding a note of hope that uh, God is going to intervene and he's going to turn this picture around and actually bring salvation. And then in the 50s, you get this incredible view that Isaiah shares of how this salvation is going to come through a suffering servant, a suffering servant who's going to go through unspeakable difficulties and sufferings to bring about this salvation. And by the time you get into the early 60s, and we're looking at chapter 61, you suddenly get a new a person speaking, uh, talking about the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, and, and a whole lot of things flow from that. And suddenly it's a picture of what in the future, once the Savior has come, which we now know is Jesus Christ, who came down to earth to live and to die for us, what a community and what God's people will look like into the future. So we're going back in time to step into Isaiah's shoes to see the picture he has looking forward of what God's people will look like in the time of Jesus in the new covenant. And uh, chapter 61 is this beautiful picture of a community which is based and built on grace, on the grace of Jesus who came to save us. And this is going to be something, we could choose many chapters in the Bible, we've, for the interest of time, have picked one today of something of a manifesto or a picture of what this can look like. And this will be a chapter which I'd love us to keep going back to time and time and time again, so we can stay on track and we can remind ourselves what is the picture of the church that we would all love to be a part of. So this is Isaiah 61. So let me give you the big idea of Isaiah 61. The big idea of the chapter is this, that the grace of Jesus produces a community that lives in grace and takes grace into the world. The grace of Jesus produces a community that lives in grace and takes grace into the world. And so I'm going to make three points on this chapter. Point number one, God creates a community, which is based on grace. Point number two, God gives his people a new identity and new work, which is based on grace. And point number three, this community is going to go forth into the world to display grace in all of its splendor. God creates a community, the people get a new identity, a new work, and this community is going to go out into the world as a display of His grace. Okay, so let's begin with point number one, God creates a community that is based on grace. Now, a couple of years ago, uh, 
my wife and our children went on holiday back to South Africa for many weeks, and uh, they abandoned me to suffer the fate of my own cooking. And uh, I was given one instruction, and this instruction was I had to water the veggie patch. Now, the veggie patch is this one meter by one meter plastic container, which is a small veggie garden, you know, for urban living. And uh, you grow herbs and vegetables and all these things inside of it. And uh, I had to water this veggie patch. Well, mistakes were made. And uh, when, when the family returned, it was, was no longer a veggie pod, but actually, that's the name of this thing, a veggie pod. It was actually a desert pod because the soil was so dry, it resembled the Sahara. These little herbs were all kind of keeled over. They were impoverished. They were sick. There was the smell of death in the air because they had died. And uh, it, it was a pretty, well, not a pretty picture at all. And there's this netting which goes over this veggie pod, which uh, is designed to keep the birds out. It actually resembles a cage. So these poor little plants are dead and now enslaved and imprisoned in this, uh, in this veggie pod. Well, imagine, imagine that scene. Imagine if I waved the magic wand and in the blink of an eye, I produced an oak tree, which is shot straight out of the veggie pot. I mean, how big is an oak tree? I don't know, 30 meters high, huge, big, huge trunk. That's some of the picture which Isaiah is getting at in the first couple of verses. So let me reread verse 1 to 3 for us. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. We know that this is talking about Jesus because Jesus in the Gospels claims these words as referring to himself. So Jesus is saying, these words belong to me. And the Holy Spirit and the Lord God are referring to Jesus, the third member of the Trinity, who's going to come down to earth and is going to change the scene radically. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. End of verse 2, to comfort all who mourn. Verse 3, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And so Isaiah is writing to these people saying, hey, you who are impoverished, you who are brokenhearted, you who are captive, you who are in prison, you who are mourning and in fear of death or under the agony or the, the, the threat or the fear of death, you who are dressed in ashes, you who have a faint spirit, I'm writing to you. It's, it's as if you were the, the vegetables and you're all withered over and keeled over and you, you're effectively dead and you've got no hope. I'm writing to tell you good news. Someone is coming. Jesus is going to come. And he's going to turn this whole situa situation around in the blink of an eye. And so instead of these dead vegetables, you're going to have this towering, huge oak tree that he's going to plant. There's going to be good news. There's going to be binding up of the injured. There's going to be liberty. There's going to be opening of prisons. There's going to be beautiful clothes given. There's going to be the oil of gladness. People are going to be dressed in garments of praise. It's this incredible picture of how God comes to save and to turn things around. And that is the basis of 
Grace community is grace. It's God coming to save us and to rescue us. And we're effectively dead. And he resurrects us. How does this happen? Well, says Isaiah, the answer is in verse 2. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And favor and grace are synonymous or linked ideas or words. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. There's a day of vengeance, says Isaiah. You, because of your sin, you should be dead and all these terrible things, broken hearted. But the suffering servant is going to come, who's perfect and pure. And he is going to take the vengeance from God on himself so that you don't. There is a day of vengeance, and that day is going to fall on Jesus. You can choose to associate with that. You can choose to put yourself in Christ and have your sins paid for on the cross. You can choose to associate with his resurrection. If you don't, there is another day of vengeance coming, a day of judgment at the end of the world. But you can fall under his judgment now in Christ so that you can receive his resurrection and live. So that you can become an oak of righteousness. So that he can give you his righteousness. So instead of being a person who's mourning and dying, you can actually be the strong, towering oak. Full of the righteousness of God. Where God gives you his own righteousness. This is the great wonder and the truth that Isaiah foresees, which we now have to live in. That idea should be the basis of every church in which we are uh, committing ourselves to being the basis of this church. Don't you love the fact that it's a ratio of 1 to 365? One day of vengeance and a year's worth of favor. God is slow to anger and abounding in love. So I put it like this. Because of one day of vengeance on Jesus... We get to live in an endless year of God's favor. Isn't that wonderful? We have an eternity of the favor and the good wishes and the favorable disposition towards us from God. A quick look at verse 3 and then we'll move on to the next point. Those who put themselves in this Jesus Christ will be called, as we've been saying, oaks of righteousness. This is at the end of verse 3. A planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Now, I have a French friend who uh, uh, referred to the English church plant as the English church plantation. And uh, it always used to tickle me, but I thought that it was actually a brilliant picture. That the church is not just one tree. Because it's the plural here, oaks of righteousness. We all are oaks of righteousness. A plantation in the plural, forming one forest, one community. And this is the community idea here. Is that God is planting all of us as oaks of righteousness out there in the world. And we'll look at that in a moment. Why are you being planted out there in the world as an oak of righteousness? Well, the answer is that he may be glorified. The work of grace, of course, we benefit enormously. Don't get me wrong. We're going to heaven. We're in good favor with God. But ultimately, it's for his glory, for his namesake. 
This is one of the founding principles of this new church. Okay, that was point number one. God creates the community. God comes and saves us, and the basis of this community is salvation from vengeance in Jesus Christ. Point number two is that God's people then get a new identity and new work. So what do these oaks of righteousness do? Now we've been made oaks of righteousness, what should these oaks of righteousness do? Well, says Isaiah, thanks for asking. It's in verse 4. These oaks of righteousness shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. We've got to get to work in the city where we're being planted. We are there for his glory, but now we've got to get to work. And what is our work? Our work is to be attracted to ruin and devastation where we see it, be it in relationships which are wrecked or hurt, be it in people whose lives are ruins or devastated, be it in systems, be it in offices, be it in structures, be it in broader society, it's the ruins and the devastations which the people of grace are called to be planted in so that they can be part of, and other translations use words like renewal and restore. Because we have been restored by God in Christ, and because he's now planting us out there in the city, and that word is used in the cities, with these powers of renewal in us, we can help renew and restore things which are broken in the world. That's the new work which we have to do. I put it like this. People of grace have their finest hour in the ruins and the devastations of life. People of grace have their finest hour in the ruins and devastations of life. But there seems to be a bit of a change of identity going on uh, in Isaiah's poem. This is a poem, so it's a genre of poetry, so we've got to read it like that. Verse 5, so they're in the cities. Verse 5, it says, Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Now, there are many things going on there. I'll try and keep it simple. There are many ways we can interpret this. It's poetry. Let me give you one thought that I have about this. So it seems like there used to be plowmen, shepherds, tending flocks, and vine dressers. People, you know, it's all very agricultural. But then they become very urban, and they're now trying to rebuild the ruins of these cities. Then we get told that, oh, you're not called any of those things. Your real name is actually you priests and you ministers of God. That was something that was reserved for one of the 12 tribes of Israel. But now all of you are going to be called ministers. I think what's going on here is you used to look at your work like that. But I'm giving you a new identity when this Jesus comes and changes your life, turns you upside down and renews you and restores you, you've got work to do out there in the city. And you shouldn't see yourself like you used to in your former career, but you've got a new identity. 
you're a priest of God. When you are restoring the ruins in your office place, in a marriage, in a family, in a friendship, in a structure in society, in a poor or impoverished community, when you are operating like that, you should see yourself as being a minister of God. Yes, there will be ministers and priests in the temple, and we'll pray for sure, but you should also see your role, all of you, as being a priest of God out there in the world. Because he ties it in there with, you'll eat the wealth of the nations and in their glory you will boast. There seems to be some engagement or interaction. These are not people who are priests hiding away in the temple. Although, yes, you will go in the temple and pray. But these are priests out there in the world doing their thing. It's a new identity that he's giving them. You should see yourself as ministers of God's power in its various forms out there in society. And there's a new work. You are going to rebuild the devastated places. And so I've shared this before, but let me repeat it. Church on a Sunday is the halftime of the soccer match. So it's good to have halftime of the soccer match. Everyone comes into the locker room, and the coach has a few words of wisdom, one hopes. And then you slap each other on the back, and the goalkeeper, who's acting like an idiot, thinking he's a striker, you say, what are you doing? You should be doing this. And then you get your strategy back together again. You don't score the goals in the change room. And so often church becomes that. We all just try and look good in the, at halftime in the change room, scoring goals in here. No, the real goals in life are scored out on the field in real time, out there in the world. And so we both... We are a community which comes back together again and stands as one body. But then we scatter through the week to be used by God out there in the world. Uh, I have a, should I tell you a quick story about a halftime? Okay, so at my school, we were big on rugby. And at halftime of the rugby match, there was one coach who was uh, a notorious character. He, uh, he, in fact, he used to punch the schoolboys. Anyway, that's the, I came from a crazy place. And uh, he was a very, very, very scary, intimidating guy. And so he, at the halftime, he calls the team together and he says, everyone had to huddle around and he said, uh, so this is a complete segue, but anyway, too late now. And he's, he says to the, uh, he says to the team, boys, I want you to remember the three C's, the three C's, courage, commitment, determination. <laughs> and uh, but you dare not laugh because this guy would have, uh, would have thumped you one. Okay, so that's half time. That's what it's like to be a priest coming back into the body. But then you go out onto the field in the real world, in real time, to be planted as an oak of righteousness in some neighborhood or some area or some office where God is going to use you. And how do we operate out there in the world? Well, in verse 7 it says... Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. So, here's my diagnosis. Many Christians out there aren't full of the grace and the love of God in Christ, they're operating under shame because they feel they're not good enough. This idea that Jesus loves them just as they are hasn't quite made sense. 
And many Christians are out there in the world trying to play by the world's rules, live up to the world's standards, trying to look good in the eyes of the world as a way of dealing with their shame. That's my observation. But here, the picture is, if you really believed you were dead in your sin, and God came and rescued you in Jesus Christ, and poured his love and adoration on you, it changes the way you see yourself completely. You don't need to earn X to be approved. You don't need to have a certain job to be approved. You don't have to look like this or look like that or have this level of beauty or this level of status or whatever the worldly metric is. You've already got infinite love in Jesus. And if you don't have that idea, you will live a life of shame trying to deal with your shame with worldly medication. As opposed to people who are free, liberated from their jails, full of the oil of gladness, rejoicing, exulting in the Lord, that He accepts us just as we are. And that He's working on us. We are works in progress, as Brian was saying earlier. That we're unfinished, that He, we're on a journey with Him, but He loves us just as we are. And He's working with these powers of grace in our lives to take us forward. And so let me read you a quick quote from a book I've been reading recently, uh, which talks to this idea of shame, and uh, rather having a new identity, a new identity in Christ. And this is a book by uh, John Stark, and it goes like this. I'll read it fast. Modern people reach for healing and gain a sense of self-worth through performance. Researchers have been studying a phenomenon they call perfectionist presentation. In this context, the term describes someone who feels the need to present their life in such a way that they experience approval and belonging. British author and journalist Will Storr quotes psychology professor Gordon Flett, who describes perfectionist presentation as, quote, the tendency to put on a false front of seeming perfection where you cover up mistakes and shortcomings. However, in Christ, we have a received identity rather than a curated one that requires consistent upkeep, improvements, and filters. We were meant to live under the loving gaze of God. And his acknowledgement of us, rather than trying to display a life that measures up to the world standard for a balanced, optimized, or admirable life. While we crave the, I want your life, Instagram comments, what we need is the consistent voice of the Father telling us, you are my beloved. Well done. I love you. And I underline this sentence. We were created to live on the Father's affirmation in Christ. The affirmation of the world is a moving target, leaving us perpetually anxious and cultivating our insecurities. But the Father's voice of love is stable and firm, forming us into resilient people. There is no curation of our image when we are in Christ. You cannot add to or enhance who you are in him. Point number one, God creates the community. It's based on grace. Point number two, this community, these people have a new identity. They see themselves differently and they have new work. They look at their work differently. They are ministers and agents of God out there. Point number three, the community goes forth into the world to be the display of his grace. Point number two is the stuff we do. Point number three is just the stuff we be. We just are out there, and we are just the display of grace. 
Okay, in verse 8, Isaiah says, I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. That's sort of the language of marriage. We can understand it like that. God is wanting to marry us, form a covenant with us, an unbreakable love relationship where he is committed to us, an everlasting covenant. An everlasting covenant. It's like the fairy tale of the rich, rich, young, handsome prince who finds a girl in the gutter and marries her. The disparity is just so big. This amazing, powerful God who will come down, take the punishment of our sin on his shoulders so that he can form an alliance, a covenant, a bond with us, which is unbreakable and which will last for eternity. This marriage produces children. That's verse 9. Their offspring shall be known among the nations. And their descendants in the midst of the peoples, all who see them, shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. And so I want to point out two words here. Their offspring shall be known. All who see them shall acknowledge them. People who are in covenant with God, in Christ, people who are in this covenant of grace with God, will be recognized, known, identified as those who belong to God, as those who are in Him. Part of just being a Christian, yes, we've got work to do. Yes, we've got some ruins to repair. Yes, there's devastation where we should go as the grace people and apply the grace and the love and the power of God. Yes, there's work to do. But on the other hand, there's also no work to do. We just have to be. We just the trophy wife of God, that he's loved us and rescued us and lavished his goodness upon us and beautified us and treated us like we don't deserve. And just being that so that people can see us and connect us with this great God, that in and of itself is enough, saying Isaiah. Just being out there, just being a planting of the Lord in and of itself is a real and a deep beauty. There's also, uh, and this is what... The previous sermon was about, remember we looked at the original instructions and purpose of people to be God's image, to go out into the world, to multiply. You you remember all this? Okay, for those of you who were awake, you remember this one. And we were going to be blessed. God was going to bless his image. We're going to take his glory into the world. You remember all of that? Well, Isaiah is kind of paraphrasing all of that here. There's talk of offspring, of descendants, going into the nations, being blessed, being acknowledged, being connected, bearing the image of God, being to his glory. Just being a display of his grace is good enough in many instances. Okay, then we get to the real uh, marriage verse, the wedding verse, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Do you remember April 2011, when uh, William married Kate? You remember that? 
Now, uh, I was on a flight, an internal flight in South Africa, then to Doha, then to uh, Singapore. I think, I think I passed through four airports. And every airport, there was a jolly wedding on the TV. And everyone was glued to this wedding. Th there's something eye-catching about a royal wedding. There's something that everyone just stops and looks at. That's part of what is being said in verse 10. If you are married to the king because of this grace of Christ, you're in this royal wedding. You are treated like royalty. And when we really live in the truth of that, and when that is enough for us, and when that is our everything, when that is our identity, that's the way we look at ourselves, that's the way we value ourselves and judge ourselves, through that lens, we become something eye-catching. We have the beauty of God placed upon us. I'm going to skip to verse 11. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts... And as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all nations. Full circle, we return to Eden. God is a gardener. He's planting this beautiful garden. He's got all these different colored flowers which are going to pop up through this, the soil. He's a gardener. He's, he's making this beautiful garden out there in the world. And he's chosen each one of us in Christ to be with him, to be in this holy alliance with him, to be a display of his splendor, a planting of him in his garden, which he is going to use out there in the world to renew the world and to restore the world. This is the picture that Isaiah has. It's incredible. And we want to be, at Grace Community, a people like this, a people flowing in these principles. And so finally, just to wrap up ever so quickly, I want to just remind us of our four commitments, and then I'm going to whip through this. The point is not for you to remember or to take notes, but it's just to give you a quick overhead of where the four commitments can be found in this passage. Okay, remember our four commitments. We committed to taking the message of grace outside, number one. Number two, we are committed to living grace internally. We're all committing ourselves to that. Commitment number three, we are committed to take practical grace to the poor and the vulnerable in the cities. Commitment number four, we are committed to, on the back of this grace which God has given us, to flourish in our personal spheres wherever he has planted us. So those are our four commitments. I'm going to go through this really quickly. Don't try and take this down. Just going to give you an overview. And uh, your homework class is to go through this passage yourself and to see where all those commitments can be found. So we've got preaching. He's, there's proclamation, that's in verse 1, of good news to the poor. The poor, that's commitment number 3 right there. There's uh, talk of an everlasting covenant. That's the message, commitment number 1. There are offspring that are being born again. We are committed to seeing people born again. We are committed to seeing multiplication and expansion of more people coming into the faith. Commitment number two, in-house grace, a community of grace. Well, wouldn't it be amazing if this church was a place where those who mourn, those who are sad, those who are faint in spirit, those who are poor, those who are brokenhearted, those who are hurt, all that list of what people go through. Wouldn't it be amazing if those folks, you folks, us folks, all felt welcome in this environment because of the grace that is found in Jesus? That's in-house grace. There's comfort. 
comfort is a, an application of grace. Wouldn't it be amazing if people were given new clothes in this church? A new identity, a new sense of purpose, and a new sense of belonging. Wouldn't it be great if this was a church of the oil of gladness, where praise was found, where we called ourselves priests, where this was an environment not of shame, but where people get double honor, where we treat each other with double honor instead of shame, where we know how to deal with sin, we are honest with it, and yet we still apply grace, and we still apply honor and dignity. Wouldn't it be great if we rejoiced and exalted in the Lord, like verse 10? What about commitment number three? A commitment to the poor and to the vulnerable of the city. Well, part of our job is to take the good news to the poor. It says that explicitly. That's metaphorical. It's also literal. We need to go to the poor. Verse four, the ruins and devastations. That's a clear calling for us to commit ourselves to taking practical grace to renew and restore. Uh, verse 8 says, God hates robbery and injustice. That's part of us taking grace and good things into the world. Commitment number four, flourishing in our personal spheres. Well, you're a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. Where has He planted you? You're an oak of righteousness. Remember, we are a plantation. Where has, which family has He planted you in? Which office? Which relationships? So on and so forth. We are the planting of the Lord. We are the priests in the world. We're out there, priesting, being ministers of God in the spaces that we're in. Verse 7, we have people rejoicing in their lot. What is your lot? What lot has been assigned or apportioned to you? I could go on and on. Uh, finally, we're in, in the garden. What color flower are you? Where have you been planted? Where is God asking you to bloom and to be an advocate or an outpost or a sign of this great grace? Okay, I'm going to leave it there by asking you three questions just so we can apply this and uh, not just leave it in the realm of theory. So my first question to you all is this. How can you apply the love and grace of Jesus to your poverty, brokenness, imprisonment, and sadness. So you might be feeling broken, poor, imprisoned, and sad. How are you going to invite the love and the grace of Jesus to come in and help and restore you? My second question to you, think about where God has planted you as an oak of righteousness. How can you glorify God where you've been planted? And then finally, wrapping it up, what ruins and devastations are around you? Wherever you might be, in your eye shot, what is ruined and devastated around you? How can you take the grace of God to these ruins and these devastations? Amen. It's an exciting journey, grace community. Uh, let's remember Isaiah 61 as we go from here. Can I ask you to close your eyes and pray? You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.